Hey guys, Sagar and Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. So this week we brought Jane Coaston of Vox on the podcast. She's got a great beat, especially for this podcast. She covers the American right from the perspective of the center left. She's their senior politics reporter, and she also co-hosts their twice-weekly podcast called The Weeds. One of the things I love about this podcast, we focus on the ways that the right and the left have changed since 2016. And Jane's perspective is particularly valuable because she's somebody who comes at this with left libertarian views. But I've always appreciated her ability to navigate the undercurrents that are changing within the right. And I think she provides a really valuable insight as an outsider that Marshall and I might miss because we're actually participating in it. She really filled in some of the blind spots on this. It was an excellent discussion. Yeah, and the one thing that you're going to note listening to this episode on Super Tuesday is that we recorded this a few weeks ago when it looked like Bernie was going to run away with the Democratic nomination. So a lot of this discussion really focused on Bernie, and if I could go back in time, I think I would have had us focus a little more on the broader field. But you'd be the judge of how we did, and let's dive in. Jane Cosen, welcome to The Realignment. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming. Absolutely. So, Jane, you actually reached out to me to quote me in a story. So, yes. obviously, I had to reciprocate and bring you on this podcast. But for real is, we both, Marshall and I, we've followed your work for quite some time. You work at Vox. You cover the right. And mm-hmm. I think it may be fair to say from a left perspective. Ish. It left-ish perspective. I, I've I've occasionally, um, I always, there. I have many people who spend a lot of time trying to figure out, like, mm-hmm. my political allegiances. And I always tell them the exact wrong thing. Like, yeah. recently someone emailed me, like, we know you're a committed Republican. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm a monarchist. <laughs> <laughs> I long for the return of the Habsburg Empire. Well, There's a lot of those on the right now, too. I was going to say, I, it's a fair you, thing. Yeah, you the, might the, be closer <laughs> to some of the listeners. <laughs> then you may know. Sup, Tradcons. Um, there we go. I mean, the sizable part of the audience. I think one of the things we want to start off with you and talk about is just like, how did you get into this? Because what has always fascinated me about your work is that you really have sought to actually understand the right when you write about it, mm-hmm. which, you know, you would think is a prerequisite for many of these people, but is apparently not. How did you come to find this beat, so to speak. And I know that, I mean, you've publicly said you were kind of on the right, libertarian right, in the beginning on yourself. So what kind of put you on the path forward? Um, well, it, it's interesting. I've always been interested in whatever the political ideology that is my exact opposite is. Mm-hmm. Um, so my parents are union Democrats. Um, I'm actually, I'm, uh, I talked about my dad yesterday, and now my dad is going to be interviewed by NPR because he's a black man in a swing state, so people are very interested to yes. hear what he oh, has yeah. to say. Hot commodity. Um, you can come on the yeah. podcast if <laughs> yeah. he wants afterwards. I, I think <laughs> we could get this all going. Um, and so, but I grew up in um, Cincinnati, and mm. so, you know, very Republican state, especially at that time. It's eh, more so, less so, it depends. Um and so I was, but I was interested in the people who I knew who espoused conservative viewpoints. Granted, when you're in grade school, if you're espousing conservative viewpoints, it's because your parents are conservatives. Right. And this was like Clinton era and then Bush era conservatism. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a little bit different. But I was just so fascinated by it. Like, I actually find um, my own political leanings kind of boring and esoteric. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's how most people's politic, personal politics are. Right. Like, I'm always interested in, you know, or fascinated by people who are very much like, ah, my politics is like, 
I'm a strict whatever this is. Because I'm like, that's not how people work. That <laughs> would just be like, I like everything on the menu at Chipotle. Yeah. Every single thing. And I do not need anything besides that menu. And I'm like, that sounds weird and boring. <laughs> um, and so I started out, actually, um, I was editor-in-chief of a conservative libertarian newspaper in college. Just mm-hmm. um, I not really being either of those things. Um, I think I've become more libertarian as time has gone on. Um, but at the time I was not, but I was interested in the subject. Um, and I've always said that, you know, if you're an editor of something, like you just ask your writers, like, is it true? And can you prove it? And I'm like, go nuts with whatever you want to say. And so I thought that, you know, I could edit pretty much anybody, um, provided they, you know, is it true? And did it happen? And can you prove it? Um, and then, you know, I kind of got pushed out of journalism a little bit because, um, I had a journalism fellowship in St. Louis in 2010 at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And then uh, it turns out finding a journalism job in a Rust Belt city is hard. Oh, yeah. um, so I did PR. I wrote about college sports at night for SB Nation. So I covered the NFL and college football, which I think was invaluable. Mm-hmm. Um, people will never be as mad at me as they were when I wrote about uh, Ray Rice and <laughs> beating up his fiance. Yeah, like, geez. never in life will people be that mad. Yeah. And so it's funny when people are like, oh, how do you deal with it now? I'm like, mm. no, 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 this is nothing. Like, right. <laughs> getting, like, weird racist emails, I'm like, mm. eh, that's fine, whatever. Right. Um, and then um, a friend of mine in sports writing world uh, invited me to go write at MTV, which is, w- and that's kind of where I started doing this. And I really wanted to emphasize how much of, my work is not oppo research, which I think a lot of times when people who are purportedly on the left write about the right, they write about it in like, this is what these people want to do to you. Yes. Um, and I think that you're, you get that somewhat on uh, in conservative media when they're writing about the left is like, you know, they're writing about it as if you may have never seen a Democrat in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You know, you see that in left-leaning journalism of, like, pe- you know, Republicans being kind of a hypothetical thing. Um, and I so didn't many want people right. sort of is. That's the whole point about sorting. Right. right. If, if you're sort of a New York City resident, I don't think you've, I don't think you've met a Trump voter, right? Right. To, or to you've met, like, the like very weird Trump voters. They, like, you've I'm met ex- the guys who are like, I voted MAGA for the tax cut. Right. And you're or, like, like well, I'm an extraordinary wealthy gay man, and I yeah. love Trump because right. of reasons and who are you possibly talking about jay who could possibly say um but i didn't want to do that you know i started out i did a series at mtv that was like conversations with conservatives and like you know i talked to ben dominic for like three hours um in part about the iraq war and i talked to charles cw cook and i talked to a whole bunch of people who i thought were interesting because i think so much of journalism now a lot of times focuses heavily on like who people are and not so much on what they say or what they do Mm -hmm. um i am not particularly interested in people like their people being bad i'm really interested in the ideas that people have whether or not those are good or bad um because i think you know for a lot of times, especially when people talk about Trump specifically, they're like, like he's boorish. And I'm like, I don't care if he's boorish. I'm concerned about the Nigerian travel ban that appears right. to have appeared out of nowhere mm-hmm. that the Nigerian government was surprised by. Like the actions that are being taken, I think I'm like, you know, him being on Twitter a lot, like I'm on Twitter a lot. Yes. So who am I to judge? <laughs> well said. Yeah. So what year actually follow up what year were you doing those conversations because i think that what's interesting about the conservative movement what we cover here is that 
the conversation you'd be having in 2013 yeah. is way different oh. than 2017. 2013 right? was thousands of years ago. This would be um, 2016, 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were right on the cusp of oh, yeah. the realignment. It's It's been funny because um, there are a couple of people I spoke to at the time yeah. who were like, Trump is the worst thing that's ever happened. I can't believe this is happening. I don't know how to stop it. And now those people are kind of like, eh, we're just going to ride the bomb. Like, mm-hmm. it's very... It's interesting to see how that's happened. and But, it, I mean, I think it's understandable. I think at a certain point um, when, you know, community pressure exists, but also if someone does the thing, does things that you like doing, it's going to be harder for you to be like, this is an esoteric challenge to my identity. Right. When it just sort of looks like what a Republican presidency would normally mm-hmm. look like. And what's funny is I think a lot of Republicans, especially at the elite level, sort of holds your position about journalism in the sense that, yeah, Trump tweets boorish things, but if I look down the line, if I like tax cuts, yeah. if I... Judges. Judges. Oh, yeah. There's, there's plenty to like there, whether like yeah. that's good or bad, but if you're a Republican... Yeah, and it's interesting also because I think that um, Trump or the people around him, triangulated correctly towards Mitch McConnell. Like, he became more like Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell did not become more like him. <laughs> In no they, way whatsoever. <laughs> right, because, uh, you know, if you hearken back to the campaign, people, like, Republicans were not necessarily concerned that Trump would be mean on the Internet. People, tr- Republicans were concerned that he would basically be Huey Long, but in 2016, like, mm. a populist president who was going to spend billions of dollars on infrastructure and on doing on doing these specific things that, like, independent voters were like, that sounds awesome, but, like, r- rock-ribbed Republicans were like, no, thank you, we don't want that. Let's do health care and taxes first. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that worked out real well. Yeah, and especially because Trump was like, health care seems hard, and everyone <laughs> who has been alive was like, yeah, <laughs> it my is. My favorite quote of his was, nobody knew health care would be so complicated. Which uh. I just, you know, Paul Ryan, <laughs> like, every, it, I've been trying to reach out to Paul Ryan now, because um, he's at AEI, mm-hmm. and, I want, and his person is like, you know, he's not really doing interviews right now. And I'm like, I understand why, because I think that just a 45 minutes of sighing wouldn't really be like yeah it wouldn't be primo content (laughs) but um yeah i it's interesting to see how that transition has happened and it's it's funny because i think that um you know we talked about this when i Mm -hmm. spoke to you that one of the challenges is that the message of 2015-2016 Trump and the message of 2020 Trump are like two different things and 2020 Trump is basically like imagine if you had voted for like you got Mitch McConnell. You got Mitch McConnell unbound. And so if is that what, not necessarily Republican voters, but is that what independent voters who are kind of like, well, I really don't like Hillary Clinton and this Trump guy is weird, but you know these specific things he keeps saying sounds great. I don't know if that's what you were going for. Because I think Trump was effective in that he, and I, I've made this comparison a lot, um, so if you've heard me say mm. it before, you can ignore it, but um, you know, he kind of campaigned as the tabula rasa candidate, yes. where you could project all of your hopes and dreams onto him, and whatever it was, you know, he's both like best friend evangelicals, or he's like the most pro-LGBT GOP president ever, and all of that could somehow be true and not true. And yeah. it's, it's interesting because I don't think that there is a um, you know, there's been a lot of weird Bernie Trump comparisons that I think are very dumb. Mm-hmm. I do think the thing about Bernie is that like he's been basically the same guy since like 1978. But the projection 
some from some Sanders supporters is going outward of like, and here's where he convinces Joe Manchin to do these things. Right. And I'm like, have you seen Joe Manchin? Like, <laughs> so why is the comparison so? I mean, let's go into that. Like, why is that yeah. a dumb comparison? Because to devil's advocate your argument before you even make your argument, <laughs> uh, we're very fair here on the podcast. Absolutely. They are anti-establishment. Mm-hmm. They are disliked by the people in their establishment. And Trump in certain weird ways has actually been consistent on issues that ne- don't I was going to say, in terms of that tabula rasa thing, you're right on some issues, but on, on the ones that mattered the most, he was just like Bernie. Had been the same thing on trade basically from the very beginning yeah he thinks Swap he's always Japan thought he's China. always thought that debt is good right and that trade is kind of bad yeah but you know i'm thinking more of the fact that like he knew who pat buchanan was and then just suddenly forgot sure. who pat yeah. buchanan right. was which you know we all selectively forget things we mm. don't want to know about um i think that the comparison one um my colleague matt Iglesias has written about this but sanders as there's like bernie sanders you know, not not me, us, like campaign Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. And then there's Senator Bernie Sanders from Vermont. And those of, you know, Senator Bernie Sanders has been a pretty, like, normal, independent, Democrat-leaning senator. Um, you know, he was uh, outspoken. I mean, he's been really outspoken against, like, the Patriot Act, but so has Rand Paul. Like, there have right. been a lot of issues in which he's been, like, normal and i think that there is in a lot of how we think about politics there's kind of the person and then there's the idea of the person Mm -hmm. it's how trump can somehow become like the concept of masculinity except when you look at trump you're like really all right Mm -hmm. whatever and then bernie sanders becomes like you know vladimir lenin when in actuality i'm like no this is a guy who like he's been in the senate for a long time he knows how things work and like he knows how the concept of politics actually works and so i think the comparison doesn't quite work because i think that for sanders one it's not it's not so much you know with trump it was sort of like I alone can do this, and if you just let me handle it, I'll figure it out in some way because I'm a business deal-making genius. With Sanders, it's sort of like, you know, he is the rock you drop in the pond, and then it ripples outwards to cause political change. How? Unclear. But what... They have a theory, sorry. There is a a theory theory of change here, (laughs) and the theory of change appears to rest on a couple of variables that we have not yet gotten filled in yet. But yes. I think that, you know, what The Rock looks like is, like, Medicare for all. Like, it's these concepts. Mm-hmm. And, like, I think that that is a difference. I also think that there is something about our politics. And I, I think that, you know, I said before that writing about sports was, like, the best possible training for doing this. Because mm-hmm. when you win a really big game, there's a narrative shift about who you are as a team. Even if you won that big game in a way because the other team was bad or because of like a weird backwards fumble or like, I don't know, a neutral zone infraction that pushed the yardage back five yards, whatever. And then the next game happens and there's another narrative shift. And so I think that a lot of people are still back on the narrative shift that was 2016 and they haven't yet gotten to the narrative shift that was 2017, 2018, 2019 special elections. Right. And so I think it's important to think about not so much about like the narrative of you know this campaign or what 2016 looked like, but to think about what's taking place right now. I think that's a good that's a good point. And and one of the other th- things that we actually try and do here is not just focus on Trump, but kind of right. what's bubbling 
under the surface and more what did he what did he unleash within the American right? What did he change in terms of the Overton window and the way that we discuss issues? And I know you have in particular been a, like been at least aware of this, like on economic yeah. policy, right? right? Technology like what, policy. Josh Hawley yeah, isn't yeah. doing what Josh like Hawley's doing. Like economic policy, no, no. foreign president. policy, and technology policy. Like these things, the way that Josh Hawley, Marco Rubio, Tom Cotton, many others are talking about China technology. Uh, Tom Cotton would still be there. <laughs> oh, but yeah. Right. Other two are Probably. <laughs> but even on China, I'm not necessarily sure if it would be the same level of position. We could talk about, we literally speak with Tom Cotton so people can hear for themselves. But how have you seen that kind of play out after Trump became president? Because oh, I think I, that's the most interesting oh, it's, phenomenon. It's way more interesting than yeah. Trump. Um, is, And I think it goes to that that tabula rasa concept where people, you know, Ted Cruz did not win the presidency. If you wanted, like, Heritage Foundation conservative, you got Ted Cruz, and people did not want Ted Cruz. Mm -hmm. Now, that happened for many different reasons, but I think that what Josh Hawley and others within conservative circles saw is that there was a version of conservatism that they understood, that they thought that they knew what this was. And then voters said, that's not what we want. That mm. is not, you know, we did not, we did not think the Iraq war was a good idea. Yeah. We did not think that like these, you know, we think that the government should be involved in providing health care mm. um, in some form or fashion. And it's been interesting to see Trump kind of be like, eh, like, you know, like he scuttle away from it. it. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that has caused a real rift within conservatism. And I think that there I mean, uh, several rifts. Um, I think that you are getting from some never Trump Republicans. Um, not all of them. I think that there are people for whom they're like, you know, th- he is not the he should not be the vanguard of this movement or what people think of when they think about conservatism. But I do think that there is a lot of uh, principal Skinner. Is it I who is out of touch? No, it is the children that you're getting from like, you know, like, you know, things were great in 2003. Mm. Um, Things were not great in 2003. (laughs) Uh, But, and I think that, you know, there's that rift. But I also think that there's the break between conservatives and their libertarian counterparts. You know, in they were once united through fusionism this idea you know like we can get along to oppose the threat of communism or to support the concept of free markets um and then it turned out through the election i think a lot of conservatives were like actually people don't like that yeah um or it's not so much because i think one thing that we occasionally forget when we write about politics to think about politics is that some voters are confused as we are like voters are complicated people voters can simultaneously think that uh, Chinese influence on our economy is bad, but our ability to get cheap goods is good. Yes. And those are easy things to square in your head if you're a voter, but not so much if you work at like AI or something. Mm. And so I think that that rift has been really interesting. And I think that that actually is, um, some of it I think is incredibly cynical. Um, I don't think that you're getting the like, you know, the government should go harder after obscenity prosecutions if the president is Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. Um, I what, what what are you referring to? Um, so there has been a m- m- move by some conservatives and kind of the um, uh, 
specifically coming from kind of the uh, traditional conservative wing, um, from the magazine First Things, um, which post, uh, published a group letter called Against the Dead Consensus that talked about this a little bit, about kind of like, we need to break up with libertarians, and we need to use the state, essentially, to form a higher good or to support the highest good. Mm. Now, who decides what the highest good is? Uh, who knows? Um, but part of that has been with an effort to go hard after pornography and obscenity writ large. And mm. it's something I've written about um, because it essentially is the I, you know, it is not just about pornography. It is a and the idea that the government can determine what is good and what is bad for people outside of like, you know, specific like FDA approval of things, but like moral good. And that the government should be in, in, encouraging moral good as determined by someone. Right. And I think for a lot of libertarians, um, I spoke to um, Catherine Mangu Ward at Reason for a piece I wrote on this. And she was essentially like, this is the nanny state progressivism that we oppose. But now it's coming from Republicans. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's been a really interesting shift in, I mean... I think, as I said, I think a lot of it's cynical. I don't think it happens if Clinton is president. I don't, you know, I think if Clinton is president, you have a lot more like I'm a rock-ribbed libertarian Tea Party ethos, but it's what's happening right now. Yeah, but I I don't think it's cynical. And or so I don't think it's cynical, but I agree to your point about Hillary. But I think the reason why, I think the feelings have always bubbled up there. But I think the reason why it's happening now is the social conservative, so you're referring to fusionism, yeah. the social conservative yes. leg of the stool. I think they've realized Explain that. Explain the stool, Marshall. Yeah, so the, the Re- what Reagan did, or at least the idea Reagan did, was he enabled conservatives to have three stools. So you had the, the um, you know, three legs yeah. supporting a stool. You had the foreign policy hawks, you had the fiscal conservatives. Um, and then you had the social conservatives. And I think what the social conservatives have realized, and people like Raihan Salam and Ross Douth that have yeah. written about this for a long time, was that actually the libertarian leg of the stool, the fiscal conservatives, they were always the most electorally weakest, right. but the most overly represented yes. in, in D.C., yeah. New York, and San Francisco. Yeah, it turns out the uh, free market <laughs> consensus wasn't really a consensus. Um, it, and the, like, the chamber of commerce wing right. of the GOP, and that's a term that yeah. is not my own. I did not invent that. Um I think that, that that has been bubbling for a long time. And I just, especially because I think that when you, you know, I think that the turn came when businesses started adhering or, I mean, for many reasons, a lot of internal pressure, external pressure started basically being more progressive on issues. And then so in 2015. Right, exactly. And so, you know, when you have... Apple calling out, you know, state RIFRAs, not the federal RIFRA. The federal RIFRA is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, the Fre- uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, yeah. um, which at the federal level was caused in part by people trying to do mescaline. Um, but you, when you have Apple and Salesforce, you know, all like these major companies, and, you know, then you have a wing of the GOP that's basically like, if companies want to do it, companies can do it. You, you have social conservatives being like, no, that's not, no, no, no. This is not a good not. deal this for is us. Not, <laughs> this is not ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, that that's been really interesting because I think that when you have, one of the challenges, I taught a class um, at the University of Chicago this past fall on conservatism, um, which was a really interesting and fascinating experience. And I brought in speakers um, like Josh Hammer from Daily Wire mm-hmm. and Charlie Sykes and Sora Abamari and Nick Gillespie uh, from Reason. 
Um, and one of the things that I talked a lot about is that con- you know there is a difference between philosophical conservatism and movement conservatism. And one of the things with movement conservatism is a lot of it has been united not so much by common shared principles, commonly shared positive principles, but by a common enemy, namely yes. communism or the left. And so you can get a lot of juice out of just saying socialism sucks a whole bunch of times and being like, <laughs> can That's, you get a lot of juice out of that? There, you can get a lot of money out yes, of that. Yes, you can get a lot yeah. of money from wealthy old people. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, that's not, you know, saying that something else sucks is not saying, and we're for yes, things. No positive good, right. And, you know, that's been a big challenge with kind of campus conservatism because they're like, okay, what are you actually for? And Free speech. Yeah, and then, For well, what end, though? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then whose speech? And, right. well, then it, then it all gets really messy. But so I think that that's a challenge for conservatism because you had an idea of what conservatism looked like that was based on that stool, that was based on Reaganism. And then you have these people now who are like, well, that was f- 40 years ago when he won in 1980. And you know, for a lot of younger conservatives, they don't r- obviously know Reagan in like a personal way. But also, you know, UCL, it, it's been, f- I, I am always deeply amused by groups attempting to use like old speeches or old clips against other people. And so you have like Reagan being like, an open borders immigration advocate, which I'm like, that's, but it was different because of how time works. And you see, you know, Numbers USA does this all the time with Barbara Jordan, who I'm just like, I don't think she would be cool with you doing this. But like, (laughs) it's interesting to see that shift because the uniting principle now for many conservatives is like, we just don't like those people. And whatever it is, we just, you know, you know, it, it it actually kind of goes back to the Buckley saying about, you know, standing athwart progress, yelling stop. Yeah. Except progress is just whatever it is liberals want to do. Whatever. Mm. But without kind of the, and this is what we're all united in being for. Well, I think you're, you are talking certainly about a professional grifting class here in D.C. I would say, I mean, one of the things Marshall and I really try and do here is figure that out. What is... Like, if you are to have a realignment on the right, if you are to rethink a free market consensus or a foreign policy consensus or a tech consensus, what does it look like if you are still to embrace kind of new ideas? So how have you seen that kind of begin to bubble up? Like, you see with positive speeches by Senator Rubio, like on China, or Satosh Hawley on technology policy, or... I'm sure I'm missing many friends there, but I mean, what what do you, what, how do you see that in the kind of the context of what we're talking about? Because I don't think that that is rooted in no, 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 no. We don't like these people. It is kind of the creation of a of a new good or a new positive that is definitely different than what it used to be talked about. Right, and yeah. I think it's so different to me that I'm kind of like, I think about it in terms of how um, you know every year. Uh, college football teams, like, you know, there's turnover. So mm-hmm. there's turnover, you know, and so college football team will get a new strength and conditioning coach. And he'll do something about, like, this year we're really going to emphasize, yeah, like, right. you know, we're going to be faster and stronger and everything is going to be totally different. Mm-hmm. And then, like, you know, they go five and seven and everybody gets fired. <laughs> so I, at this point, I'm kind of like, you know, I am sure that Marco Rubio, like, when he gave that speech at Catholic University yes. and thinks a lot about how social justice um, kind of a Catholic concept of social justice, um, you know, how that influences, how that should influence government policy. And I'm like, cool, sure. But 
you know, if a Democrat wins the presidency and Marco Rubio is still in office, is he still making this? Is he still making mm. these points? Is Senator Mike Lee still talking about expanding the earned income tax credit or kind of expanding the concept of the quote unquote welfare state? You know, if we're in a different scenario now, I know that that's an almost impossible question right. because you can't know what you can't ever see. Mm-hmm. But I, th- I mean, I do think there are conservatives who are having these conversations and are you know thinking more about positive good. But I also, I what I keep thinking about is is this also disconnected from voter sentiment? Hmm. Is this also is this just as disconnected as Paul Ryan's "A Better Way" was? <laughs> is this just as like you know when you talk to, and especially because I think that even the concept of like what is a conservative. Which, uh, it's funny, you know, there's been a lot of, like, recent writing on this idea, but it's, it, no one seems to be able to quite agree on what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think that a lot of this has been shaped by our current context, um, by, you know, the rise of deaths of despair and thinking a lot about um, working class, well, specifically white working class men dealing um, with, you know, a rising death rate or something like that. And a lot of, um, you know, people have read J.D. Vance's uh, Hillbilly Elegy and thinking about that. But, you know, that context existed in 1993, 1984, and Republicans were like, and now it's time to help NAFTA. And mm-hmm. so I think that for me, I'm kind of in a wait and see about what this actually means. Sure. Because I think, you know, there is a, there is kind of a, um, I'm going to use this term and I'm trying to divorce it from the person who came up with it because I don't know if they all meant it at the time, a compassionate conservatism. I think that there is that idea and I think that that's been around for a long time, sure. but I'm just, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical about how deep a hold that has into like the, into conservative voters. Because I think, I mean, it's all well and good if you're a think tank person and you're mm-hmm. thinking about these ideas really deeply and thinking about how, um, you know, social security could be reshaped or Medicare could be reshaped. But like when you talk to conservative voters, what are they getting? Where are they getting this? So what's really helpful that you sort of hit on is sort of in this moment, especially if you're sort of giving hot takes on the right, you really need to sort of sort through what's a trend that's going to be with us long term and what's sort of like a specific, like, for example, I don't think conservatives are going to be focusing on the color scheme of Twitter um, in three years. No. but here are the trends. The trend is that conservative, and this is a Michael Lind argument, mm-hmm. and I'm curious what your response is to it. The reason why we're going to see a conservatism that's more interested in the state and less interested in, let's say, limited government is that conservatives have no more access to um, major corporations. They are no longer sort of, if they ever were, at the heights of higher education. Um, and finally, Hollywood and the culture, not just sort of in the annoying sort of like, oh, like they're doing, you know, mm. dirty movies sense, but <laughs> like very like literally like conservatives that basically have no presence um, in Hollywood or sort of the cultural right. heights places, tech companies too. Right. The only sort of place that conservative working class voters who are down market are going to have an ability to influence is the state. So if conservatives then, and this is why I think we push back on libertarians, if libertarians say, well, that's a status thing, you can't mm. do that, and you've basically given up the playing field. Right. And you basically have zero ability to influence It's anything. the last area we have to exercise our power, because that's, this is what Lynn talks about, which is that you know, there used to be a union for working class people. That's gone. There used to be churches, that by and large. They, they, yeah. But, 
forced it, censorship churches in weird which ways. had not not forced censorship but yeah, they had was forced fine they had some sort of of power in terms of the culture that's gone and so that with all of these things gone that it essentially has removed any ability for them to exercise power except in the state and i feel like that is going to stay with us for quite some time i think so yeah. um it's interesting because one, it's it's interesting you reference the breakup of unions, which mm. I'm like, hmm, ha, huh, funny how that works. Um, yeah. hey, we weren't alive for that. <laughs> By the way, so we're not yeah, accountable. We weren't around. 1990. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to take responsibility for yeah. the 70s. <laughs> um, I think it, it's so interesting to me that liberals think conservatives have like this yawning maw of power at their disposal mm -hmm. and conservatives think liberals have the yawning maw of power and i'm like well you both can't be right you can, um you can know but you can be if you go up by category yeah it's in like government right you, now yeah, it's the Supreme yes. Court. right but liberals have power in the economy culture yes and this sort of in the technology industry but yes conservatives but like, right by now, that argument the you know the existence of and i think about this a lot because you know i i when um, people talk about like race and racism, there's occasionally the like, well, the most famous people in America are black people. And I'm mm -hmm. like, and congratulations to them. But like, right. that does not, you know, political power make. Um, I think that, but I do think that that sentiment of being like, no, it, we have to influence the state. One, I think that that is here to stay, but it's so different. Like, mm. you know, I think for a lot of conservatives, they very much were going from the Andrew Bar Breitbartism of, you know, politics is downstream of culture. And now you're seeing the exact opposite argument being made in mm. publications like First Things and Journal of American Greatness of like, no, 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 like politics can beat the shit out of culture if it wants to. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that is a really interesting shift. I did a piece a couple of years ago talking about California conservatism, which yep. was laser focused on right. culture because it basically was like, well, we will never have political influence in the state ever again, which to me, I'm like, well, anything literally can happen. Ronald Reagan was governor of the state within like lived memory of many people. Um, but I do think that the key, you know, controlling the state and then using it to, conservative ends i th and that that being a good um i think it's a really interesting shift the uh, you know and it, i mean i think that that's one of those things where you the cynicism kind of creeps back where it's just kind of like unelected judges making decisions are bad unless they're for us in which they're awesome mm -hmm. um but i also think that that is going to shift how you know, because at a certain point if you Political power is, I think, to me, a more important form of power, um, a, a better, you know, a you know better weapon to use as a cudgel, but it's not as visible. And I, um, there's a writer now at the New York Times, Elizabeth Brunig, who yes. talks a lot about how you know conservatives want the culture, and liberals want the politics, and neither has either. Um, and I, th I think that that's really true because I think that there very much is, you know, there will not be, despite, you know, the efforts of many who have tried. I, I you know, I, um, I wrote a piece because I grew up um, uh, in reading, like, a lot of evangelical publications for 
long and varied reasons. And I've always in, been interested by kind of the evangelical interpretation of, of popular culture and, you know, the kind of the effort to create an evangelical popular culture that would at least rival, if not replace, popular culture, which hasn't really gone that well, but they're working on it. Um, and it's been so interesting to me that the idea that um, that culture has been ceded to the left um, is still so present, but also that like conservatives would then say, like, well, that's it, we're out, um, but we've got judges. And I think it's, it's a fascinating... I feel like my my wording is it's because it's so it's so it's so interesting to stand and observe two sides of politics that simultaneously believes that the other side is way power, but they have moral authority mm-hmm. and to see those two go at each other because the other is both. I mean, I think that this was always the funniest argument, uh, funniest thing when people talked about, um, like, Hillary Clinton being, like, the all the conspiracy theories around Hillary Clinton, which is just like, okay, so you think that she's, like, a serial killer, but she didn't, like, you know, kill Anthony Weiner? Like, at a certain <laughs> she's point. She's an incompetent serial killer. <laughs> which I was just, like, either, like, at a certain point, you were asking me to believe that she is a super evil villain, but also <laughs> entirely incompetent and did not go to Wisconsin. Yeah, there's like, not a lot of logical Like, at a certain coherence. point, I'm like, there's a logical leap here you're asking me to make that I just won't do. But I, I think that that is, to me, one of the reasons I'm so interested in conspiracy theories is because I think that they have a lot to say about how we think about the world. Absolutely. Um, and I think that, one of those things is the idea that there is, you know, when I read, I get emails from like, you know, the kind of the heritage blast emails or kind of conservative outlet emails. And they're just like, you know, the left is running rampant. And like the example is like one trans kid in a state that you don't live in did something and you're mad about it. And I'm just mm. like, really? And then, you know, you get the same emails from, like, the nation that's like, mm-hmm. the right is, like, gonna come and burn down your house. And the example is, like, a judge issued an opinion, but it was right. in a dissent, and it didn't <laughs> actually happen. Right. And I'm like, guys, we all need to just, like, no, no. Like, well, you're the, really critiquing is the nonprofit donation <laughs> system. Yeah, yeah, right. But, Sagar, I, real, yeah, I, I yeah. think that, you know, that's the real enemy here. Yeah, yes, so right. I think our last section that Sagar should actually lead us into is about Bernie Sanders and socialism. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of grand, I, th- I think to your point about things that are both true and false at the same time, I think a lot of people's grand narratives about the past three years are going to go, or if, if Bernie wins the primary, because you're going to see like sort of democratic socialist revolutionary change versus sort of like weird, like right wing populism, like Sagar, like we just yeah. into that. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the real question I want to get with you is is how that, how that is going to, how that might change the right and expose kind of what you're talking about with this tabula rasa, which is that, you know, like you see this with Bernie and with Bernie, he's kind of already bubbled up some of, in my opinion, the worst elements of the American right, which is that you have hundreds of millions of dollars that are getting ready to be spent on socialism takes, capitalism creates ads, which I don't think is electorally going to work. Why? And you Well, yeah, I, I can go into that. that. I mean, I think that that's, it's, well, this is something that Trump ran against right. inherently in 2016, which is like, like I mean, yeah, capitalism creates jobs in China and Africa, and it turns out it takes them away from Ohio. And so these are one of those things where, yeah, you can still be a capitalist and and believe that markets are made by men and that maybe we should do something about it whenever it comes to protecting our own citizens. I guess I'm curious about 
how because you talked to a lot of other people on the right yeah. for that piece in which we originally spoke about. How do they? What's the counter to my view, right? And which do you ultimately think might prevail going into that election? And 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 how might it come about if Bernie to win were to win, or if Trump were to win? Um. Well, to your first question, yeah. how do they think about it? I think that there is, again, these are all reliant on multiple theories of change that I, you know, have not yet happened. Um, well, there's kind of the first, which is that um, Americans hate socialism. Yeah. Which I think, again, is reliant on polling questions about, one, what is socialism? Um, there was a piece in Reason Magazine that made the point of, like, you know, like, oh, Americans hate socialism, but, like, you know, and again, li libertarian publication, and they're like, well, w w Social Security, like, you know, the, all of, you know, Medicare, yes. Medicaid, there have been a number of government programs that the right or some entity basically railed against as being socialist programs, and now people are like, actually, we love these yeah, socialist programs. We're, you know, right. we're incredibly into them. Um, and, you know, I think that that's, you know, one of the challenges that happens when um, I think Sanders supporters talk about like these country comparisons, it drives me insane because I'm like, you know, if you can find another country of like 370 million yeah, uh, right. people that's as racially and ethnically diverse as we are, but that also has a federal system in which states and the federal government are supposed to have like separate powers, well then th we'll compare it to that. <laughs> um, but we're not comparing it to freaking Norway. Right. Um, but I think that, you know, the socialism argument of, like, Americans are inherently opposed to socialism, which, one, again, it's a definitional problem. Correct. But, two, like, that doesn't tell you anything else. Like, Americans don't like this thing. I mean, I feel like that's essentially um, – I'm reminded of uh, in 2004, it was like, well, Bush is unpopular. Americans don't like Bush. Mm -hmm. I'm like, but that's not, a can that's not a campaign. That's just sort of a, a thing that is true. Um, I think the – you know, going to your point, um, when we talked mm -hmm. and I talked to a couple other people, one of the interesting things is that, you know, it is easy. Trump will have to claim that America has now become great again and now we have to keep America great. When many of the people who voted for him on a make America great again message have not yet seen the greatness um, and it, it's been very interesting to me. Um, this got to a problem though, which is that this, it's a tabula rasa. So I don't know, like for me, I could define greatness as Brett Kavanaugh smashing Bingo. through what I see right. as the liberal media. I could say it's the idea of the wall, right? Like we get right. into the technical, but like, <laughs> and you could also say like, look, like we're, we've, we've, uh, we've ended 40 years of complacency with China. So it's, it, there are actually a lot of people I think that message is going to resonate with. I think so, I think so, but I also think um, I I just keep thinking about uh, there's uh, author uh, Chris Arnade who wrote this book. Yeah, I'm on the he's podcast. podcast. Yes, he's, yeah. he's great. Yes, um, and I keep thinking about his work and how people in you know, the people he talked to interpreted events and a lot of um, you know what you were just bringing up the people in that book would be like, what? Right, but Who? they didn't vote in the first place. And that's actually and that's, one of Chris's that, key points. I think points. that that actually, right. um, <laughs> we've talked a lot about this, yeah. uh, Chris and I, because one of his points is that um, when, you know, when white people are, you know, white people go populist and black people stop voting. Mm. Um, it kind of in response to um, kind of economic and social malaise. But, and I think that that actually goes to Sanders' message, mm. which is that like, 
you know, the people, you know, he could talk about, um, you know, farm banks, farm subsidies, which, by the way, that's kind of socialistic and has led to me making many great leap forward jokes that were received very well by the Internet. But um, (laughs) I think that there is a challenge. I mean, one of the things about Trump is that, like, I'm sitting here thinking, like, well, how will he make this argument? I'm like, he'll just make it. Like, yes, it doesn't really require it doesn't yeah. really require like cogent thought to do. I do think that the simultaneous, you know, you know, in 2016, he was railing against Wall Street, um, and whether or not he believed it, I think that there were people who kind of were like, well, it's Hillary Clinton who loves Wall Street or Donald Trump who purportedly hates Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And now he's the one who's basically like, but aren't your 401ks doing right. well? Isn't the stock market doing awesome? And I think that that is, you know, it might not prove to be a challenge for him. But I do think that that is a weird argument to be making. And especially because he is going to be relying on the same economic indicators that he spent like, two years telling everyone that were bullshit. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you remember him talking about how, like, oh, the jobs numbers, like, you just yes. can't believe them? Right. Or the unemployment numbers are fake news. And now it's like, oh, the job numbers are super real and well, amazingly I, awesome. That, that's always been an issue for me. Is I think he was right that they are BS. Like, right. I think he is correct that a lot of these indicators are astroturfed as to the real problems. Well, especially of because eco- of unemployment numbers don't count people who are just, who that's are right. not labor so this right. goes to your point, though, Jane, which is that just as people are not following the Brett Kavanaugh nomination right. two years later, people are not following 2015 takes about Correct. jobs and econ numbers. What they are following is probably, especially November 2020, yeah. is going to be like, what's the state of the stock market and in the economy? Look, I want to give Trump credit. Like, current Pew polling that just came out like a week ago says that he has got the highest rated, highest approval rating on the economy since George W. Bush in 2001 in the post-9-11 era. Right. So. People are feeling something. Yeah. How that translates to a vote, I right. truly have actually no yeah, idea. Yeah, and I think that that's the thing. Like, it's like, I, I after 2016, I'm like, I'm out of the prognostication business. Yeah, yeah. I just, I don't know. <laughs> the most reasonable I, take we've yeah, ever No, I don't, I, I just don't know. Like, because, especially because you're like, any of these people could hypothetically beat Trump. Trump could hypothetically beat any of these Correct. people. I don't know. Whatever it is, it's got probably going to be closer than people think it will be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that it is interesting to see how much... Um, I've thought a lot about how Trump and the Trump administration are sometimes two different things. Like, the Trump administration is very tough on Russia. Trump, less tough on Russia. Right. Or like, But also, I think that that means that there is kind of... One thing I think that will be key to follow is how much Trump and Trumpian conservatism have anything to do with each other and how much they need each other and And how long, you know, the coattails of Trump. Because how many candidates are running right now in GOP primaries on, like, who's the Trumpiest Trump to ever Trump a Trump? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you've you've seen that in states. You know, I remember um, a couple of years ago, the first piece I wrote for Vox was about uh, Kelly Ward's campaign in Arizona, um, which was essentially like, what if you just like took Trump and then boiled him down and then smoked him? And that's what Kelly Ward did. And removed the weird charisma, too. Yes. This is why it didn't work. (laughs) Yes, and it decidedly did not work. But they had uh, these two staffers who basically went from, like, campaign to campaign, like, Trumpy campaign to Trumpy campaign, being like, we can make you even Trumpier. Um, But that's actually been a a good story for me out of the Trump era, which is that, yeah, putting on a red hat and saying drain the swamp actually is not going to cut it, which is that you actually do have to have 
some level of ideological coherence right. behind what you're saying that Trump ran on in order to actually win and right. resonate Which with is, voters. And it's interesting because it seems that only Trump can get away without having that at all. Without, mm. without, without, you know, if draining the swamp, well, I think it also comes down to when the, what do these phrases actually mean? Yeah, and because two think, voters, two yeah, voters. To, the what do they part. mean, two voters? Like, if draining the swamp meant, like, you know, cutting down on lobbyists in D.C., mission absolutely not accomplished. Right. It is, you know, m- they're lobbyists all over the place. Like, mm-hmm. it is a very swampy administration from that perspective mm-hmm. of, you know, of grift and excessive spending and that I, perspective. I would say the swamp, more than anything, meant to the GOP voter, maybe I'm wrong, is really about technocracy. Right. And that... They, that it was an unchecked technocracy. In my opinion, the way they looked at it was technocracy and influenced particularly by money, money elite and the financial elite from a left perspective. See, dude, that I'm is kind of how I want to disagree. If you I, want, I, go, for I, it. go for it. Technocracy? Like what? If I got I, no, I, I, I think it, that's that's why I think the deep state narrative has risonated. But that wasn't so what he much. ran it, but, but no, but he wasn't. But it wasn't. Right. What he, no, but like, and this is the problem, right? Which is, I think you get to this in your pieces, which is there's this huge danger. I think the California conservatives, um, who will go unnamed, are guilty of this overly intellectualizing this person because mm. at the end of the day, I again, think, but I think that that is the tabula rasa thing is that you can yeah. like what he actually yes, meant yeah, yeah. was the technocracy. When I'm like, if I would like to hear Donald J. Trump explain the word. Oh, I don't know if he can. I'm but saying like, I'm, I'm trying to speculate as to what did it mean to cause millions of people to come out and vote. No, but millions of people. Right. No, but this is the dude. Millions of people yeah. didn't come out and vote. I'll, I think we'll cut the dudes. Well, I'm saying yeah. too much, <laughs> but um, but, but, but no, like Hillary Clinton was one of the worst pr- nominees Correct. in modern American history. People didn't really come out, and Trump lost the popular. And there vote. are millions, no, but, but, but there are millions of Obama Trump people who did switch their votes. It's an empirical fact. I think that. And so, I mean, I think that there is. Two things on that. I think occasionally like, there's there's Obama Trump counties where yes. you know, Obama voters dropped out mm-hmm. because you know there was a great piece right after the election about Black voters in Milwaukee who were basically like we didn't vote and we don't care. Yeah, um, I remember. But that. I do think that there is a degree to which I think that for some people, like Obama felt authentic, and Clinton, who literally was basically like. You want four more years of Obama? Say no more. We'll get you exactly that. Mm-hmm. I think that turned people off. But I, I, I think that trying to interpret what voters took from, um, you know, if, there, if there's anything I've been learning uh, over the past couple months in the primaries process, when you read, like, voter interviews, we're like, well, I voted for Trump in 2016, but now I'm really into Pete Buttigieg. Right. But if and he Medicare doesn't, for all. And Medicare, and Medicare for all. <laughs> but then, you know, if Pete doesn't win the nomination, I'll just vote for Trump again, which I'm just like, Sure. Okay. Yeah. I mean, because I think that there's this idea of the voter, and I think that you especially get this when people talk about um, non-white voters, mm-hmm. um, uh, black, you know, black voters, or Asian voters, where it's like kind of this idea of like, uh, like your opinions are based on this thing or based on not this thing, and I'm like, no, like we're just people who are co- as confused as anyone else, right? And so I think that that is. A real challenge, and that's why I act, I have no idea what would happen if Sanders were to win or if Trump were to win again. Um, that was going to be our last question right. for you. So uh, thanks for preempting yeah, us. Sorry. Um, <laughs> no prognosticating. Like you said, no no, no prognosticating. Yeah, I do think that um, a Sanders win. W- my only my only prognostication 
And I realize that this is making me sound like all of those pieces from 2015, 2016 about how Democrats should root for Trump because mm-hmm. even if he won, it wouldn't be that bad. People like, will hold that over your head for four years. You know, so no, careful. people. And I'm like, <laughs> this is like, I, I see where this goes. I'm just like, <laughs> I, I, my DMs would be unreadable. <laughs> but I do think that the like theory of revolutionary change behind uh, Bernie Sanders, unless Democrats also won the Senate, would be relative to what some people on the internet think it would be, muted. That Mm. is my only statement, and I'm prepared to be wrong. If Democrats, you know, swept the, you know, one took back the Senate and won the White House, and in, like, a year we're talking about how, like, Medicare for All has been implemented, um, and sure, Okay. You cover the right, so you're I know. okay yeah, to get all, that call right. I know, I know. No, I think it, it's funny, though, because uh, because I cover the right, there's a lot of, like, Democratic politics where I'm just like, I don't know. They all seem like people. Okay. Um, <laughs> they're, they're all, like, I think that that's something that um, uh, there have been some interesting writing on, uh, though not enough, is that apparently, like, the big challenge in primary states is not, that, like, you hate you love one candidate and hate the others. It's that, like, people are like, actually, I would vote for any of these yes. people. Yeah, um, it, I think, this is causing a big problem right now. Yeah, so where it's turnout like, is relatively lower than people expected because they're like, I'll just vote for whoever becomes a Democrat. Yeah, they just basically, you know, like <laughs> it's like everybody turned into my parents who's ba- who yeah. are pretty much just like, whatever they come up with, it'll be fine yeah. and we'll vote for them. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. I mean, I, I, which I think is probably a much healthier interpretation of politics yeah. than to just because I think like there is something. I've never been um, like super into any particular candidate in an election before. Um, I put all of my emotional marbles into sports where they belong, mm. um, which is it's the safest place for them. It's much healthier. Uh, well, I mean, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, I think that most people, their poli- like they are not dry. You know, most people are not primary voters they are not driving to new hampshire from iowa to like go work for a candidate or something like that so i think their interpretation of politics is probably more akin to what normal people feel like Mm -hmm. um but yeah that i don't prognosticate anymore i don't know i i I don't know and i'm trying to find out that's my job good for you all right jane we we have to go thank you so much for joining us of course absolutely thanks for having me thank you Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. I think this episode had one theme. It's the idea that President Trump and the movement that he represents is sort of a tabula rasa. You could look at conservatism, you could look at populism, every single thing that's happened ever since June 2015, and you could have your own disparate interpretation of what it is. Yeah, I think that's the most dangerous thing, actually, about the movement as somebody who cares about pushing it in one way, is that you can, as this is what Jane was talking about, you can kind of write whatever you would like onto Trumpism. It means whatever is in the eye of the beholder. I mean, you especially that section where we were talking about technocracy, I, I really do feel that it was kind of a revolt against a certain type of system, but I'm not going to lie and say there isn't a certain part of wish-casting whenever it comes to that. I mean, I have tried and I've tried to grapple with this now for over three years, and anybody can have their own interpretation of what it is. And really, that, if anything, is what this podcast is really about. Right, Marshall? Yeah, and I think if we're going to our wish-casting system here, I think the wish that I have for what this all means is that for the past 30 years, ever since basically the Cold War ended, ever since Ronald Reagan was president, 
both political parties have been unable to solidify a majority of its longstanding. So George H.W. Bush can win an election, but then that next election after that, the voters go for Bill Clinton and Ross Perot. Um, Al Gore can't do it, and George W. Bush becomes president. Obama becomes president, can't do it, and now we have Trump. So I don't think it's about the technocracy. I don't think it's about neoliberalism. I don't think it's about socialism. I think it's about the fact that there's just this majority of people in this country who are just dissatisfied with what everyone's offering. Yeah, so, well, that's a perfect segue uh, to next week's episode with New York Times columnist Ross Douthat about his new book, The Decadent Society. It was an incredible episode. I can't wait for you all to listen to it. And as always, make sure you guys share the podcast with your friends. Rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and download, you know, wherever you guys get your podcasts. As always, it's such a pleasure doing this with you all. 